Hi, it's Lynn Galadner, and welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm a writer and entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've learned that we succeed through inspiration from storytelling and deep and mutually beneficial relationships. This show began in 2018 after my father was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and I wanted a way to capture his stories and record his insights. It's grown since then to share stories of how people around the world make meaning from very ordinary pursuits. Now I focus on sharing the stories of writers, authors, and those in the world of publishing to learn how and why we create stories that help us make meaning from the mundane. I'm a former journalist and marketing entrepreneur, and I've been teaching writing for more than two decades. As a writing coach, I help authors build their brands and share their words. I've had eight books published already, and I just finished my second novel, so stay tuned for news about when and where you can read it. If you'd like to write with me, check out my offerings at lynngaladner.com, and you'll find more episodes of this podcast at makemeaning.org, as well as on every podcast platform you can think of. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to the Make Meaning Podcast, where you'll find stories of courageous people daring to share their talent with the world. Now, on to the show. Desiree Cooper has been a Kresge Artist Fellow, an attorney, and a Pulitzer Prize-nominated journalist. Now she writes books that win awards and grab hearts. Today, I speak with Desiree here on the Make Meaning Podcast about her long and successful writing career and why she describes her lifelong writing as genre agnostic. Desiree Cooper, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Oh, me too. I, I really feel very honored because I've been sort of like stalking you online, <laughs> following you for years and feel like I know you thanks to social media, but um, it's just a real honor to speak with you. And I have so many things to ask you. So I'm going to just jump in. You know, I was interested when I was uh, planning and preparing for this interview, I was reading through your notes and you said that you've never not been a writer, that it's what you've always wanted to be. So I want to start with that and ask you about your upbringing and how you came to this self-definition of writer. You know, there's only two kids in my family, my younger brother and myself. Mm -hmm. And from a very, very young age, he's been very artistic um, and mechanical at the same time. Voila, he's an architect. Mm. And from the very beginning, I've been like a reader writer. I, I not only wanted to read ravenously, which I did from a very young age, but I was also sort of producing my own stories um, from, a, you know, like I did all of my greeting cards. I wrote poems for, I wrote letters. I wrote notes to my mom mm. um, when I couldn't find the exact, the courage or the words to say things. And I mean, from a little girl. So she would find notes in her sewing kits. And ah. so for me, you know, that writing it down was part of, the whole process. It wasn't just devouring the books, but also the words coming out. My language was a written language yeah. from the beginning. Um, so when I really discovered, I think by the time I got up to like chapter books, which was pretty young, cause I was, um, you know, I was reading very early. Then I like, I wanted, this is what I want to do. 
Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, Lynn, I'm still saying I want to write chapter books. And I'm 62 <laughs> years old. You got this. You can do this, you know. I have yet to do it. I have yet to do it. I've done a whole bunch of other writing, but I haven't gotten there yet. So there's still there's still some work for me to do while I'm on this earth. So yes, 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 yes. Well, it's funny. I, I totally know what you mean because you know when I'm writing, it's like I'm I can really think about my words, think about what I want to say, but I'm not good verbally until I've thought it through, and that's like how I work with the words. I bet you're like that too. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because I've had bosses that were like called external processors. Uh So whatever they were thinking came out of their mouths and they were like, you know, well, we could, we could actually clear off that bookshelf and and then we'll do this. And then if we added like two or three more people to staff and I would go back to my office, like, Oh my God, I got to clean this shelf. I got to do And they'd come back and say, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, you said this in the meeting. They're like, well, I was thinking, I was just saying it. (laughs) Well, for me, if it comes out of my mouth, it's, it's already been processed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not my first thought. Yeah. So it's hard. I've had to learn how to, you know, understand that not everyone works that way. Yeah. Um, And leave time, you know, for people to change their minds because they're processing out loud. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love, I love how you say that. And I'm quoting you here. Humans need to communicate and they need to be heard and understood. Sometimes writing provides me with that profound sense of connection. So Mm -hmm. tell me about experiences you've had with readers of your writing and how it's become a two-way conversation. Well, I would say, um, you know, thanks to social media, um, you know, and I started writing professionally and getting my words out there before there was social media, but email had begun to evolve. And um, so instead of that, I would get, when I was a columnist at the Free Press, I would get these handwritten letters and sometimes they'd be long And sometimes it would be with pictures Mm. and people would say, you know, something like I hung that column up on my refrigerator, Ah. you know, door or, Uh you know, thanks for I in my column, I often wrote about what I always call it ordinary people doing extraordinary things, which is pretty Uh much everyone. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I learned. Yeah. Um, and so like I want to remember um, um, elementary school janitor had passed away and the mm-hmm. school was devastated mm-hmm. and all these stories came out about how he he loaned kids you know I, this sounds a little creepy now but loaned <laughs> kids money five dollars <laughs> or if he saw someone didn't have shoes he'd bring shoes to school you know just like being uh-huh. just so generous uh-huh. and um his his widow sent me a the column I had written about him and oh. a picture of him on his his last day alive and oh. On that day, he was in a floaty on the lake, <laughs> having the time of his life. And, and the water was sparkling and he was smiling. I didn't know this guy. I mean, mm-hmm. I knew him for the amount of time it took for me to ask people about him and put it in the paper. Yeah. And to have such an intimate sharing of, of how special he was. You yeah. know, it felt, it felt like I did know him and that he was special and deserved you know, for other people to know how wonderful he was. So the, my comms were always, I feel, as much as I could do them, as intimate as possible. Mm-hmm. And I was always the bridesmaid on the second <laughs> news page because uh-huh. 
was a constant pressure for me to write something newsy that the mayor didn't do this. The taxes are this, you know, <laughs> blah, 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 you know, and I'm like, well, this is my news. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. You know? yeah. Yeah. This is my news and it belongs uh-huh. here. So I had to always fight for that space uh-huh. and try to tell those stories that made us all feel like, God, that sounded just like my uncle. Yes, I know that woman. Wow, I've been there a million times before. And the more I did that, the more I, you know, there are no new stories. Uh There are only, I think, maybe stories that sometimes we're ashamed to share, Mm. but everybody has that same one. Yeah, yeah. Um, So those are the ones I like to write that, that do connect us as humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your first children's book, Nothing Special, debuted in the fall of 2022. So mm-hmm. tell me about this book, how it came to be, where the idea came from, and how it's been received. Well, I started at the end. It's <laughs> been received just beyond my wildest dreams. It's, Yay. Oh. it's been extraordinary. Amazing. Um, so uh, the idea, the book has been about three years in the making, and that always is so shocking to people. It's not 700 words altogether. That's about <laughs> three pages for anyone yeah. that doesn't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, And, um, you know, it's a picture book. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's just crazy how long it takes to pull, you know, that together because it's such a team effort. Yeah, I got the idea um, at a writing retreat where I happened to be uh, there on the invitation of a very celebrated children's author and poet, Marilyn Nelson. Mm-hmm. And um, sh- I was stuck on a memoir, I was, which I'm still stuck on five years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says, well, you know, why aren't you writing for children? She was almost like... Um, you're better. You're better than that. Like, can't you write for children? Like it's the pinnacle Mm. of Mm. things that you should be writing. Like it's not, it's not like a sidebar and it's not just throw something out there for children, but it's like, she was like, it's the best thing you can do is to write for children. And I was, that took me back to when actually the beginning of our conversation about Mm. how much those books ignited in me as a Mm -hmm. child. Yeah. And I was like, she's right. I mean, maybe I go back to the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And so I spent the rest of that uh, retreat. It was a week. I spent the rest of that time like, what what story would I tell? And blah, blah, blah. And I settled on Mm -hmm. the friendship between my grandson and my dad. So that's the great-grandfather, great-grandson. Um. And just how how weird it is because I moved back into my parents' house from mm-hmm. Detroit where I had made my whole adult life mm-hmm. back to Virginia where they had retired in their home. Mm-hmm. They both had Alzheimer's at the same oh. time. Oh, you poor thing. Oh, I'm so sorry. And so the best way to deal was not to move them, you know, up yeah. north to Detroit, but to move in. So yeah. I did. And I watched these two with him, you know, later in life, you know, just really bond with this Mm -hmm. little kid. Mm -hmm. And my mother, who is the um, nurturing one, Mm -hmm. was annoyed with her Alzheimer's. Like all that noise and stuff was very jarring for her. So I would have expected her to love the babies, but it was my dad of all people, military man, you know, uh, you know, very regimented, very formal guy. Yeah. So these two became buddies and I wrote about that. And then um, 
later I met this fabrication artist. The best way to describe her work is like you've seen a stop mm-hmm. animation. Mm-hmm. The clay claymation is what a oh, lot yeah. of people know are yeah. familiar with. Well, this uh-huh. is with more like with puppets, except that it's not just the puppet. She makes every single thing Mm -hmm. in the scene, Mm -hmm. the house, the trees, um, the flowers, the butterflies, Mm -hmm. whatever is in that scene is handmade Mm -hmm. from textiles and then Mm -hmm. photographed. Mm. And so I talked with her, I told her the story, the word, nothing special. The title comes from a little boy comes from Detroit to visit his grandparents in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Uh, He thinks he's going to go to the mall. And so the story is um, a little boy comes from Detroit to visit his grandparents in Mm -hmm. uh, the country in Virginia. Mm -hmm. He thinks he's going to do everything um, that he does in the city, the mall, the zoo, you know, Mm -hmm. just have a good old city time, the movies. And his papa goes, I think we'll do some of the things I did when I was a boy. And Jack says, what's that, Pop-Pop? And Pop-Pop says, ah, nothing special. <laughs> and so they keep doing nothing special things that, of course, turn out to be very special, um, mm-hmm. like crabbing and making kite by hand and shucking corn and mm-hmm. counting fireflies and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Beck and I, who is that fabrication artist I was mm-hmm. talking about, we always just said, wow, this is really special. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not nothing special. It's really because yeah. the more she made the characters based off of my actual family, the more my dad came alive. He died in 2020 and he never saw oh. this book. Oh, I'm so um, sorry. Yeah. And, um, and that, relationship evolved in these pages and Mm -hmm. it's just been so 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 special it was Mm. so special that I even launched the book Mm -hmm. in our yard because I'm (gasps) in um the neighborhood where my parents lived on the same street for 50 years Uh and all the neighbors knew my dad and my mom yeah um they didn't know me as well because um, we moved in the neighborhood when I was in high school and I moved away, you know, mm-hmm. after that, never really lived here and lived in Detroit. So, mm-hmm. um, so all these old timers came out mm. to the launch party and mm. we just had like a block party to launch the book. And it was, oh, it was just so amazing since they all knew my dad and they would look at the book and go, that's him. That's him. Oh, that's- I love that. That is, I mean, I've gotten chills like five times since we've been talking and it's just like, so, so special. It just, yeah, it just, that's so cool. So how's it doing? Um, you know, early reports of, you know, successes and sales. Do you know any of that? I don't know the sales, but I'll tell you, I've probably sold about 200 copies, like out of my bedroom. Mm, that's <laughs> um, awesome. That's so, great. There's so many people that have asked for a copy and family, of course, family has been very supportive. Um, I am the featured as the featured um, book in the children's section with the Miami book fair, Wow, um, November 14th. Um, uh-huh. And that's a big, that's a good place to land. And I've yeah. done um, a couple of book fairs and presentations already. Um, uh-huh. It's a starred review on book list. Nice. So yeah, it's been off. It's been, it's been a great start. Um, there's, there's an undercurrent to the story that I think is also resonating a yeah. lot with yeah. African-American families. Okay. Talk about that. Tell me about that. Yeah. And I think that that's one reason why it's got like a little 
special hook into that particular community. So um, people are probably very familiar with the term, the great migration. And that was between 1917 and 1970, I didn't realize it went that long until I started to do some research, but so during the great migration, um, great populations of African-Americans left the South mm-hmm. for the North and even the West. Some mm-hmm. even went to Mexico, which a lot of people don't know. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. Of course, getting away from Jim Crow um, yeah. segregation yeah. and the terrorism around uh, white supremacy in the South. Yeah. They came to North for opportunities. So um, they really came in millions to cities like Detroit. Uh, Chicago, New York, uh, Mm -hmm. Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. Um, And what people don't realize a lot is that they were leaving terror. Yeah. They were not leaving their families. They were not leaving their homes. They were not Mm -hmm. leaving their culture. Mm -hmm. If they could help it, they were not leaving their land. Yeah. They held yeah. on to all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you will hear people talk about Detroit and maybe these other cities as well as up south mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because they do have such a southern feel to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, to maintain that connection, which was often kind of traumatizing, you know, you don't mm-hmm. think of, of African Americans as being an immigrant community, but yeah. that was, it was, they were immigrating they they did still speak english in most yeah. places but not even the same english right right <laughs> so um black families have a tradition in the northern cities of getting back in that car and going back down south every mm-hmm. summer mm-hmm. you know now it might be flying back mm-hmm. but for many many decades it was you're going to drive back and that's yeah. where you get those stories about the green book and oh, yeah. you know um, I, you know how travel was mm-hmm. uh, because they were driving from north to south and so yeah. this was a big tradition as is the family reunion mm-hmm. history has divided us so often you know mm-hmm. separated us from the continent of africa then once we're here mm-hmm. separated our families as they were created yeah through enslavement. And then after reconstruction, there was a scattering. And then again, at the great migration. And so there are so many stories of people who are formerly enslaved, looking, looking, looking for their family or going back, going back, going back Mm -hmm. to find their family. Mm -hmm. So we do that still, but we don't really know how ingrained it is from a historical perspective. Yeah, We go back every summer South and Uh so many Detroiters have that story. Hmm. And that's what this story is. This is the the grandchild going back the way his parents did uh-huh. back south to see the grandparents and, and to remain connected uh-huh. uh, to those roots. So I call that the great reverse migration. And, then it, <laughs> and it even has another twist in my family because around the 50s, um, some of those who were leaving the south mm-hmm. shows to enlist in the military. Right. Um, so there were countless of African-American men in particular. I think the uh, mili- the armed services were desegregated in 1948. Okay. And so after that, so between like 1950 and the Vietnam War, yeah, it was all about 
um, escaping Jim Crow South for opportunity. Yeah. And so you will see in Nothing Special, Pop-Pop wears this hat, embroidered hat all through it. Mm-hmm. It's almost until the last page that you can really see what the embroidery is. And it says um, U.S. Air Force veteran. Mm-hmm. And so we tried wow. to make sure that that was represented like that part of the story was represented. There's yeah. also a scene um, in the book where... Um, Jax is getting up in the morning and Pop-Pop comes in um, mm-hmm. to wake him up for, to start their exciting day. Mm-hmm. And you will see um, Jax has on a University of Michigan um, ah. t-shirt. Um, Go blue. Yes. I love it. He's, he's <laughs> a Michigan fan. So we just put it on him in real life. So we put it on him in the book. And then, um, and there's a University of Virginia college pennant on the okay. wall. Okay. And I went to the University of Virginia to law school. Okay. And so, but they're there not just for Easter eggs about my own family experience, but also the representation of how military participation in the military was an economic ladder Yeah. for yeah. opportunity for families. So that shows that the family was able to achieve, uh, you know, like a middle-class life, a college yeah. education. So that was part of the scene. Um, and the backstory that I think a lot of families will recognize. Yeah. Black families will recognize for the history I just said. And yeah. then other families will recognize it as that intergenerational connection that yeah. is so important for families and children. I love it. I love it. This book is so amazing. And, you know, we'll, of course, put links um, in the show notes so people can buy copies. But it just, it sounds not only special to your family, but like a a true American story Mm -hmm. and in so many ways. And I, I just love it. I just love it. So I wish you so much success with this book. Um, But I want to talk about some of your other writing, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I know you've described yourself as genre agnostic, which Mm -hmm. I love. I think that is so original. Um, So I want to ask you if you feel that writers need to brand themselves in a particular style or voice or, genre to build a following. And of course, I'm asking this, but I'm assuming that you don't believe that, but you'll tell me. Um, So I just want to know, you know, piggybacking that question, how have readers found you? And are they sticking with you because they love your voice across genres? It's, it's It's a tough, tough question. The branding is so important to the marketing of books. Yeah. And you're kind of a dodo head if you keep thwarting your own marketing, your own <laughs> brand. You know, yeah. like that is the most unsmart thing to do it, that I have done. Uh-huh. But my first book was published when I was 56. I turned 56. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like I have a lot of time to mess around. Yeah, so yeah. I'm going to try everything I want to try. I love it. I love that. <laughs> it, yes. It's my first and and also I'm at blessed to be at a phase in life where I don't have to depend on my writing for my bread and butter. Yeah. Um I've, you know, the whole rest of my life was holding mm-hmm. down not even 9 to 5s. You know, we all work like crazy people and they're yeah. raising families and stuff. So I'm just at a time in life where I can take a little more time and play. And so that's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. If I was doing this at 30, I might 
or 20, I might go ahead and pump out a few, you know, of the same kind of genre. Um, That being said, my first book, you know, again, the, all the marketing no-nos, my first book was a collection of flash fiction that nobody even knows what that is. Yeah. I was going to actually ask you about that next. So that you're talking about know the mother, right? Yes. It's called know the mother. Uh Flash fiction are um, are, are little stories like three pages long, you know, under a thousand words, three to four pages long. Mm -hmm. And, um, they, they, they're not a vignette. Like they don't just paint an image. They do tell a story. There is a beginning, middle and end and a plot, Mm -hmm. but a lot of the plot you might have to infer or deduce, Mm -hmm from what you're given of the story. Mm-hmm. And so for some readers, they, they may not feel complete because you're not given the end. You have mm-hmm. to take the end and, and see how it hits you, you know, or where mm-hmm. it hits you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, mm-hmm. they can be very powerful because they're very um, dense, mm-hmm. you know, stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, my, my, my first book is a collection of those, which is an odd, it's like between a poem and a short story, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. they're small and I think kind of a risk. And that book did, did pretty well. Mm. Um, and I think that part of it was because I was a columnist mm-hmm. with the free press and people were used to reading me short anyway. Yeah. Um, and so it built upon people that already knew me in that capacity mm-hmm. to more of a national audience. So I built, you know, from my smaller audience out and it, and it did very well. Yeah. So I am still writing flash fiction and I'm writing essays and, mm-hmm. um, I thought that my next book would be a second collection, but mm-hmm. then this book book, nothing special, you know, the idea hit and it just bloomed faster. Yeah. And I was very worried that people that knew me as a flash fiction writer Mm -hmm. would say, it's a children's picture book. Come on. It's like, they'd Mm -hmm. say, I don't know any kids or I don't have any kids. (laughs) So that's nice. Uh And that's not what has been happening. Uh Um, I think people who enjoyed Know the Mother um, are taking a little risk and mm-hmm. seeing what this next thing looks like, even if they don't have, I have, I have been to a lot of signings where I'm like, okay, who do you want me to sign it? And it's not to <laughs> Billy and it's not till, you know, uh-huh. little Molly. It's like, uh-huh. sign it to me. It's my <laughs> book. I want it. So yes. I have adults who are, are, are buying it because they want, they want to have it. And that makes, that thrills me because I feel like the book, I still have children's books that mm-hmm. my children never touched. Yeah. Yeah. I have my own children's book. I never got past that kid reading those books <laughs> and they are precious to me. And they're too precious for those dirty little hands and for them to just spit on and rip the pages. I'll get another copy for them, but I have my own children's books. So yeah. some of them just point the way to so many um, important things that we forget as we grow. And yes. I just love holding on to that. And so I'm glad that people are seeing that nothing special is also for their own inner child as yeah. well as for other yeah. children. That's yeah. pleasing me a lot. But the other thing is I am 62. My peers are 62. Everybody's a grandparent, not everybody, mm-hmm. but but mm-hmm. we're of that age. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of grandchildren in the world. Yep. 
or yeah. people that know younger children that want to share. So yeah. as it turns out, I think that Know the Mother is feeding into um, this book. And also with mm-hmm. Know the Mother having so many themes about motherhood, mm-hmm. so that the readership, you know, were people that were engaged in that, you know, in that role one way or yeah. the other. So yeah. they were fairly easily convinced to try nothing special, or I hope they will be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love, I love what I'm hearing you say, because I'm hearing you say that on the one hand, you're going to do it your way. I love the, I love the, if you'll forgive me, rebel author, you know, personality, I feel like I have one. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we only get this one life, so you better make the most of it. And so I'm going to write what I want to write. And, and I'm the brand, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also am hearing some themes in your writing mm-hmm. that, can cross genres and thus bring the audience along with you, which is actually brilliant branding. So I, I just love it. I think it's original and it's it's sort of like, let's do it our way and do it well. And it, and it works because your heart is fully in it and it's just so authentically you. And I just love that. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I think it's totally by accident. <laughs> so I wish I had, you know, been a lot more intentional about it because it would would have alleviated so much stress yeah. <laughs> about yes. what should I do and is this right and yeah. blah blah blah. Yeah. But I do feel good about it and I feel so comfortable about it. Yeah. Um I even did a short film mm. that um got into film festivals mm-hmm. and uh it's called The Choice. Okay. And it's about exactly what it sounds like. It's about women coming to grips with a choice to terminate a pregnancy. Ah. And wow. uh, it it comes out of a piece of flash fiction that I did. So the original story was three pages long. Mm-hmm. And almost every line of the story was a different woman's voice coming oh, from wow. a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um about the decision. And um, so even there, you know, my, my, my foray, foray into filmmaking Mm -hmm. was still around this theme, you know, a little more edgy, a little more political, but still very much about that role of um, nurturing, caregiving mother, Mm -hmm. one life making way for another. That's mm-hmm. an obsession for me because I always, I out my question is always what, what is left for the mother? Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. I I worry about that a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I know you've said that um, you feel that no, the mother has been your greatest success, even beyond being nominated for a Pulitzer. So, tell me why. Well, journalism was my plan forty nine. Because I always wanted to write those chapter books, remember? So <laughs> I tried a lot of um, different ideas like, well, I could be an English major. I could teach. I could da 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 And so, but journalism was the only way I could write, write, write mm-hmm. um, and get, get paid. Like that's my job. Yeah. And yeah. yet, even though I, I got a degree in journalism, it was 12 years between getting that degree and actually my first job in journalism. So Mm -hmm. I just tumbled into so many other things. Mm -hmm. And so the Pulitzer nomination in journalism, oh my God, really just wonderful honor, wonderful Mm -hmm. honor. I Mm -hmm. mean, that's, it's no small feat and wow. Mm -hmm. But to publish that book 
mm-hmm. when that was my heart's desire since I was a little child. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's on my plan. A, you know, that's on my way to plan A, not plan mm-hmm. B. Yeah, yeah. That was extraordinary. And I'm going to tell you something else that will give you chills, Lynn. <laughs> you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Hit me. Um, in December 2015. So I, I turned in my manuscript, Everything's Done for this book in 2015, uh-huh. late 2015. Uh-huh. In December of 2015, I was driving down the freeway in Detroit, headed to my job. Mm-hmm. And I was sideswiped by a tractor trailer. Oh my God. My car spun across three lanes. Oh, wow. It hit another car head on. My side airbag deployed, I guess, off duty fireman, a fireman who was not on his job at the time, mm-hmm. stopped for me and um, got, got help for me. And um, I ended up in the hospital with a traumatic brain injury. Oh, my God. And while I was spinning and being hit by trucks and cars, here's what I thought. I did not think, oh, my God, what's going to happen to my children? My children then were like 20-somethings. Yeah. Um, Oh, my God. You know, my parents need me, blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God. I'm not ready to die yet. No, none of those. What I said in my head was, aside from, I think this is going to hurt. I remember (laughs) thinking, (laughs) and I said, they can't take it from me now. And I was talking about my book, Mm. which came out three months later. Oh, you're going to make me cry. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Wow. So that's how important that that accomplishment was to me. I feel like I got it in the nick of time. You know, I just, even if I had died that day, I did it. Yeah. I did it. (laughs) And it was pretty good. I mean, people, you know, it, Mm -hmm. it got some recognition. So yeah, I did it. Yeah. I did yeah. it. So everything else from here on out has been gravy. I'm telling you, like when, yeah. you, when you look at something like that, it, it's like been gravy. So yeah, I wow. think that that just is is a testament to how important it's been to me to be a creative writer, yeah, not a journalist, which yeah. I enjoyed, but a creative writer is what I've wanted. Yeah. That leads me perfectly into my last question. So it's funny, I was stunned that you said that no one in your inner circle took you seriously as a writer for most of your life, and that even some of your close friends have never read your work. And then, of course, I literally laughed out loud when reading about your parents pushing you into law, because when I was accepted into an MFA program in my 20s, my dad was like, I'll pay for law school. (laughs) I'm like, well, it's four times as expensive. Will you please pay for the MFA? (laughs) Which he eventually did. And I did the MFA, um, you know, but, but, you know, he sort of like uh, kept the suspense going and eventually said, okay, fine. But, um, but, you know, so, so I totally relate to that. And I wondered what brought you um, at the age of 35 to confidently and finally claim I'm Desiree Cooper and I'm a writer. Like what was that pivotal moment that, that finally gave you that courage to say, this is who I am? I think at 35, I stopped trying to quit writing. Hmm. You know, I don't know if it was that, that particular age, but around then, you know, I would, I would write furiously. I was always in writing groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't really submitting. I don't think at that time, it's just what I, you know, some people run 
you know, whatever that hobby is, it was more than a hobby. It was like, I would get a physical, I even, I do liken it more to exercise because people who exercise a lot get Uh a physical high that Mm -hmm. from doing it, but they also get a withdrawal if they don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like something in their bodies just feels it's tight. It's uncomfortable. That's how I felt when I didn't write. Yeah. Yeah. And when I did write, I felt I got high. I was buzzing. I was so excited. <laughs> Everything was great. Yep. Yeah. Even if nobody saw it. Yeah. And yeah. so um I would I would always just say, I'm not doing it anymore. It's like it's torturing me because <laughs> I want to sit down all day, but I can't. I gotta do this, I gotta do that, I gotta do this. By the time I sit down, I'm tired, the feeling's mm-hmm. not there. Da, da. And it was just always off and on, off and on. I said, I'm done. And I would do that, but then within a month or so, I'd be right back. And I just said, you know, why am I fighting? This is, it's not going away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to actualize on this and give myself permission to be this. Yeah. And it still took me, you know, know the mother, I no joke was a 30-year process because not mm-hmm. because of the actual time to write the stories, but the actual time to have the right stories. (laughs) It took 30 years for me to have enough time and enough maturity Uh to get those stories on paper. Mm. Thank God you did. I'm so glad. (laughs) So as our conversation comes to a close, I wonder what advice you might offer to aspiring writers. Well, I always say it's kind of hard to take lessons from my life. And maybe that's in general because everyone has their own twists and turns. But Mm -hmm. I'd say the most important thing is if you can't not do it, then make sure you do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like don't deny something in you that is undeniable. That's where your talent is. That's where your heart is. That's where you're going to be the most successful. Yeah. And so pay attention to those things, even when other people don't have a lot of faith in those, like nobody around me, my dad, my Alzheimer's dad, when I was taking care of him, uh-huh. looked at me and said, huh, so when did you become a writer? <laughs> Do you not know me? Come on, you know? But no, it's just, you know, like there was not one person in my inner circle Uh that, that really understood what was happening inside of me, you know, not one person. And I didn't feel misunderstood. I just felt like, wait till they find out. That's how I felt (laughs) about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you did proclaim yourself a writer and really let your heart lead. And um, I'm so, so thrilled to have you on the Make Meaning podcast. I'm going to share all the links so everybody listening can buy your books. And um, I'm really going to be keeping a close eye, continue stalking you, not in a creepy way. And uh, just congratulations. I'm, I really love everything you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. I, it's been so fun to talk to you and and to um, sort of be in the spot of the, all those wonderful people that you have on your podcast. It's just such a great conversations you have and so inspiring. Oh. So I appreciate to be counted in the number. Thank you. Oh, gosh. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world. And please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more at makemeaning.org or Lynn